0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. It's great to have all of you here. Those of you visiting with us, if you don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's great to have you. This morning, we're going to look in the book of Isaiah We're going to look at a couple different passages in Isaiah. And one thing that that I I want to just get across to you this morning is is how we ought to look at our Bibles. Many people look at the Bible as maybe a list of morals or a list of rules, do's and don'ts. Think of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Or perhaps uh, you look at the Bible as just uh, wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom in there, much like the sayings of any... uh, teacher who is uh, wanting to impart lessons to his disciples, but if we take the Bible as just morals or wisdom divorced from the story, out of context of the story, we lose the intent and purpose of the Scriptures. We lose, actually, the power of the Bible in our lives. And so I just wanted to tell you the story, the story of human history, according to the scriptures. Began in the beginning in Genesis one, Adam and Eve were created in the garden in the image of God. And they were told that they were created to serve as a king and a queen ruling over the earth. Now that those exact words weren't said, but what God said to Adam and Eve is you need to subdue the earth and rule over it. What does that sound like? That sounds like a king and a queen. And they were to serve, ruling over the earth, displaying the image of God. And then there was another command. God told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the implication is fill the earth with other kings and queens who will also rule over the earth. And in Genesis 1, there's another image given of that garden is that it's the first temple. It's the first prototype as it were of the place where God dwells among his people because it says in Genesis 1 that Adam walked in the garden with the Lord and so Adam and Eve were not just kings and queens they were priests serving in the first temple of God where his presence dwelt and they lived in his midst and the picture was that you have this garden of Eden And you have the rest of the earth, and Adam was to take that garden and he was to spread it over all the earth. And he was to fill the earth with king priests who would rule and reign and serve the Lord as they're in his midst. But if you know the story, Adam sinned, he disobeyed God. They ate of the tree. And so sin entered the world and death by sin. And so therefore they were cast out of the garden. Even though their lives were to be given over in worship of God, as a kingdom of priests, they listened to the serpent who said, you can be God. And so they believed the lie and they thought they could be like God. They didn't need him anymore. They could be God in their own lives. They could look in the mirror and say, yes, your majesty, instead of bowing the knee to God and saying, yes, your majesty. But over time, God made more promises. He raised up a man named Abraham. And he took him out of the land of Ur and he said, I'm going to give you a land. In fact, I'm going to give you this promise of a land and descendants and blessing. Everything that Adam had, I'm going to promise you. And one of your descendants is going to bless all the nations. And this is in Genesis 12. And so God took Abraham and through his son Isaac And then through his son Jacob, God turned a family into a nation, the nation of Israel. And he did it in the land of Egypt and he delivered them out of Egypt and he brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. If you've seen Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments and the movie, he brings them out. And the reason he brought them out into the wilderness, into the desert was he said, so that my people will worship me. And he writes in Exodus 19, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. What does that sound like? You're going to be king-priest just like Adam was supposed to be. Well, the rest of the Old Testament is the story of how Israel failed in their duty to be king-priests. Over time, the people's service was given over to idolatry, to the worship of other gods rather than the one true living God. In fact, in Isaiah 1, this is the condemnation that Isaiah hears the very first chapter, verse 1, chapter 1 of Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. What have they done, he says? They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel, and they're utterly estranged. They're alienated from me. And so this is the the problem is that Israel was supposed to be God's servant. In fact, if we were to read other passages in the Old Testament, their duty as the people of God was to be a light to the nations, to be a servant. But they failed. It was given over in idolatry, worshiping other gods. And so God makes a promise that he's going to send his son to be the true king priest who is a servant. Who would bring in an eternal kingdom? And there's four promises in the book of Isaiah, these four servant songs they've been called, and, and they are there on the slide, these four passages that speak of God's servant, God's Messiah, His anointed one, who would come and who would accomplish everything Adam failed to do, everything Israel failed to do. He would be the true servant of the Lord. Now, Isaiah's writing hundreds of years before Jesus came. And I just want you to kind of keep that in mind in the back of your head as we read through these four passages and comment on them. But let's begin in Isaiah 42. In the servant songs of Isaiah, the Messiah, he's portrayed as the ideal king-priest that Israel failed to be. And the songs have a logical flow to them. First, in in Isaiah 42... The father provides a servant. He chooses him and makes him effective because he pours out the spirit upon him. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah describes the quality of the father's servant as without blemish and of infinite worth. This servant is of infinite worth. In Isaiah 50, Isaiah describes the willingness of the father's servant. He never rebels and he's not ashamed, so contrary to the people of Israel who were supposed to be God's servant. And then in Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant is described as a substitutionary sacrifice. He's exalted for his work, he's willing to be a substitute, and he actually is prosperous in his work. And so let's look at this together in chapter 42 of Isaiah God's provision of a substitute. Verse 1 Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison. Those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory, I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So in this first promise, this first prophecy of this Messiah, we see God providing a substitute And in verses one to four, we see he's sovereignly chosen. God picks him out and chooses him. He says, verse one, behold, behold, and look at this. And in the Hebrew, this idea is you better stop a moment, focus all your attention on what's going on here. Today, he'd have to say, put down your smartphones, be present, pay attention. In chapter 41, he used this word behold to tell Israel the uselessness of worshiping their dead idols. But here in chapter 42, verse 1, he says, behold, I'm going to send my king priest. But what is remarkable is he says, my servant's going to come without power, apparently, without pomp. And he's going to effect a renovation of the whole world. And so there's an irony here. How is this one going to come? who's a servant. He's supposed to be a king. He's supposed to rule and reign and set everything right. We heard he's going to rule in justice. He's going to establish justice. How in the world is he going to do it if he's a servant? And so he's, verse 1, chosen. First, because of his relationship with God. He is upheld by God. He is God's servant, the one that the father upholds. It shows that God delights in him greatly. In fact, he pours out his spirit upon him in verse one. This is the reason he's going to have the power to do this is because the spirit of God is poured out upon him. If you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, if you've ever had a chance to listen to that, I had a chance to perform that at UC Davis in the choir there back a long time ago when I was in college. And it's taken, uh, Handel took it right out of Isaiah, so many passages out of Isaiah. Speaking of this one who's to come, this Messiah, this anointed one who's going to come and he's going to set everything right. The government's going to be upon his shoulders. This combination of the Spirit and being upon him in Isaiah eleven speaks of the Messiah's incarnation. He's going to be born to a woman. The second year of his baptism, and in Isaiah sixty one, it speaks of his public ministry. Jesus quoted Isaiah sixty one as he sat in the temple beginning uh, in the synagogue beginning his public ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the captives, to preach the year of our Lord's favor. And so he's chosen because of his relationship with God, because of his spirit filling, the servant will accomplish the will of God doing what the first Adam failed to do. The first Adam was supposed to fill the earth and establish justice and rule and reign in righteousness, and he failed. Well, secondly, he's chosen because of his character in verse one, he's perfectly suited to carry out the will of the Father. Verse two, he's submissive. He doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice, make it heard in the street. He's gentle. He's meek. Verse three, a bruised reed he won't break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. And this gentleness is characteristic of God himself. If you know the story of Elijah the prophet after he had 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 this great victory over the prophets of Baal and and God had shown his power in the nation of Israel and the land of Israel to King Ahab who had worshipped other gods. And these prophets of Baal had been slain and Elijah had, had won this great victory and then he was depressed and discouraged and he ran away and he wanted to die. And God comes to him and at first, there's this mighty wind, there's this roaring wind, but God wasn't in the wind. And when God comes to him to restore him out of his depression, out of his despair, God uses a still small voice. He's gentle with his servant. And he reminds him, I have reserved for me many who have not bowed the knee. And so, this gentleness is characteristic of God Himself. In fact, this gentle, humble, gracious servant is the one who's going to, in verse three, establish justice. He's going to be effective because of his ability. He's going to be chosen to be the conqueror and king and lawgiver in verse four. Just because he's gentle doesn't mean he's weak. See, this is a good... Lesson for us to know about God. Don't take His kindness for weakness. Just because He hasn't given you what you deserve doesn't mean He won't. Today's the day of salvation, He says. He's patient, not desiring that any would perish, but that all would come to Him. And so He gives His servant, the Messiah, to come who reflects His character. And what a picture. This is what Jesus said to the, this crowd of people that were beat up and broken. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. In me you'll find rest for your soul. You ever been soul weary? Worn out by life, wishing it would all just end? Jesus says, come to me, a bruised reed. I won't break it off. If you feel like a reed that's just hanging over and about to be broken... Jesus isn't the type of Savior to just break you off. A smoldering wick he won't put out. That candle that's just barely fluttering, that's smoldering, and there's more smoke than flame. Jesus, he doesn't look at you as a a failed case and say, might as well just snuff you out. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. This is the kind of Messiah he is. And he's the one who's going to establish justice. In fact, This looks past his crucifixion to his resurrection and his ascension. And he's going to establish justice and he's ruling and reigning on high. And Psalm 110 tells us that right now the father is putting all of his enemies in subjection under his feet. And the last enemy to be put in subjection is death. And won't that be a wonderful day? Beloved teacher of mine, George Fox, some of you know him, went home to be with the Lord on Thursday. 84 years old, faithfully taught grace school theology, pastored, taught at Cornerstone Seminary for years, trained me. One of the people who trained me went home to be with the Lord. But there's coming a day when there's no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. And this servant is the one who's going to establish it. Well, he's also effective for God. Verses five to nine of this passage We see his power in creation. God says, I'm the one who created the heavens. I'm the one who stretched them out. I'm the one who spread the earth and what comes from it. I'm the one who gives breath to people. The very breath you're breathing, I give you. And the spirit to those who walk in it. And then he tells The servant in verse 6. The reason he's going to be effective is because that same creative power is going to be working in the servant. And isn't this what we saw when Jesus was on earth? He demonstrated in his miracles that he had power over the creation, he calmed the waves, he multiplied food and fed the multitudes. He had power over life itself when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was raised from the dead. You remember the response of the people who saw it? They knew it wasn't normal. His disciples were in the boat with him when the water was stilled. And they said, who is in the boat with us? And they were greatly afraid. And so in verse 6, God gives his power to the substitute. At the right time, in the right place, for the right purposes, Martin Luther said of this passage that God would hold the servant by the hand, namely for this reason, that Satan and the world, with all their might and wisdom, will resist his work. Despite the difficulty, God's Messiah will bring in the new covenant, teach people to know God, to be his people, to have forgiveness of sins. And here in the passage, it's not only for Israel, it's also for the nations as well. He says in verse six, I will give you as a covenant for the people, referring to Israel, and then he says, I will give you as a light for the nations. And that's us. We're on the other side of the planet, the ends of the earth from Israel, 2,000 years later. And the gospel's going forth. And in fact, in verse eight and verse nine, The father guarantees this servant's success. He says in verse nine, behold, the former things have come to pass. God says, everything I've told you has come to pass. And guess what? Now new things I now declare. And they spring forth. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God's not frustrated by the state of this world. It grieves him. It's not plan B. It's not like God said, oh, no, Adam messed up, and now what do I do? He's sovereign and mighty and knows all things, and he's allowed it for his good purposes. And, of course, we don't always understand why, because we have the perspective of our little sight. We don't understand the secret things that belong to the Lord. But God, who's sovereign and all-powerful and knows all things, has a sufficient reason for the evil that exists and the reason you're exactly where you are in your life. Even down to coming here this morning and hearing this message. And he says, before these spring forth, I tell you of them. He's telling Israel of this servant he's gonna send, who's the Messiah, who we know is Jesus, hundreds of years before he ever came. And he said, this is what he's gonna accomplish. He's gonna be effective. What an assurance this ought to be for us that in reality there is only one God, jealous for his name and his glory, and he's as much in control of the future as he is of the past, and therefore he guarantees the fulfillment of his word. That's why he can say he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Are you, have you been called according to his purpose? He's causing all things in your life to work together for good. Well, the second passage in Isaiah 49, a couple chapters over, we see the quality of God's substitutes. Verses 1 to 13, I'll, I'll read it for you one time. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the one deeply despised abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Wow. So the first thing we see in verses one to four is this servant is without blemish. He was formed from the womb. He was formed, as we know, without a sin nature. This is what we heard last week. When the angel comes to Mary and says to him, you're going to be pregnant. And the child within you is the Holy One from God. And Mary says, how can that be? I'm a virgin. And we would all say, how can that be? She's a virgin. God says, because the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. It's going to be a miracle. And that's exactly what happened. And so it was a miraculous conception. And she remained a virgin until Jesus was born. And he's born, and he's born without sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, Romans tells us. But he himself was without sin. He never sinned. He was prepared by the Father. Even from the womb, God prepared his body here in Isaiah 49. It says God prepared his speech as well. He prepared it like a sword and an arrow, imagery of war in the interest of the gospel of peace. This means that the Messiah, this servant's going to accomplish God's will, not by military force, but by the revelation of God's word, because he is the word of God, we know in John 1.1. And then he lives a perfect life of obedience, verses 3 and 4. He lives a perfect life of obedience. He says, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And so what this speaking of is his life from a human perspective. When the servant comes, his life seems wasted. It seems in vain. And if you were living at that time and you saw the Messiah, you saw Jesus hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem, considered a curse, you would say, what a waste of a life. He's 33, 34, 36 years old tops. What a waste. From a human perspective. But from the perspective of God, this was not a waste. This was the plan and purpose of God. He says, my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God in verse 4. And I think this should bring us great comfort. If you ever wonder if the Lord's going to use you, if he could use you, for anything good like the servant, like this suffering servant, this humble servant, you must look up and trust in the Lord. That his purposes are far greater than you can understand. His plans, sometimes we don't understand them from our perspective. But looking back, we can see that God's had a hand in it all the way. Well, this servant in verses 5 down even to verse 13 is of infinite worth. In verses 1 to 4, we see the servant is a man. And in verses 5 to 13, we see he's much more than a man. He's going to redeem not only a nation, he's going to be a light to all the nations so that God's salvation will reach the end of the earth. He's able to save Israel in verses five to six. He's able to save all the nations in verses six and seven. And this one who is despised and abhorred by the nations is the one who is chosen by God, who is loved by God, who is precious and of infinite value to God. And in verses 8 to 13, he's able to revive all of the creation. Verse 8, he's going to restore the earth and heal desolate heritages. Verse 9, he's going to turn desolate heights into pastures. Verse 10, he's going to provide an abundance of food and drink and give an ideal climate. Verse 11, he's going to produce great springs of water. Verse 11, again, he's going to change the mountains to roads and elevate highways freedom of travel, in safety. He's going to cause the heavens and earth to sing and shout for joy, verse 13. And all of this is for the purpose of his people, to comfort them, in verse 13. This is what the servant is going to accomplish. In other words, there's going to be a reversal of the curse of Adam. That's what it pictures, is a restoration of the garden, the wonderful climate and effects of the garden as Adam and Eve walked with the Lord, the Messiah, the servant is going to restore those things. And he's going to accomplish it because he's not just a man, he's God. Over to chapter 50, the third song, the third promise, he's willing to be a substitute With the first two songs, we see the father chooses him, the father prepares him, the father sends him, but perhaps in the mind of Isaiah the prophet, there's this thought that, was all this done unwillingly? Was he forced to do this? Was he sort of a reluctant savior, as it were, as so many of our movie heroes are? They don't want to be the savior. They have to be strong-armed into it. No, this one was willing to be God's substitute. Chapter 50, verse four, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who's weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace, and spitting but the lord god helps me therefore i have not been disgraced therefore i have set my face like a flint and i know that i shall not be put to shame he who vindicates me is near who will contend with me let us stand up together who's my adversary let him come near to me behold the lord god helps me who will declare me guilty behold all of them will wear out like a garment the moth will eat them up he didn't rebel verses 4 to 6 and he wasn't ashamed in verses 7 to 9 in fact, when Jesus came to the earth in John 8:29, he says, "I always do what pleases the Father." Because he's been discipled by the Lord God in how to speak and what to say, here in Isaiah, he's able to exercise an effective spoken ministry. He speaks exactly the right word at exactly the right time. And if you read the gospels, you see that. His word is perfectly given to comfort those who are weary to heal those who are wounded to rebuke those who are rebellious to discomfort those who are too comfortable in their sin in the morning by morning discipleship the servant learned the Lord's will and this is in fact where he learned the hardship that was to come he was reading Isaiah about himself as a man he learned the hardship to come the crucifixion he bravely faced it, resolutely accepted it. He perseveringly carried through with it, even though it means flogging of his back, torture of his cheeks, and sickening humiliation of mocking and spitting. It says he set his face like flint. Hebrews tells us that, doesn't it? Who for the joy set before him endured this cross, despising its shame. In this way, he's a model for our own spirituality Because we're united with Him, we too can live out this reality that we may be mocked, we may not be accepted, we may not be liked because we're followers of Christ. We may face hardship, but we can trust in the Lord because He's faithful to His servants. And He wasn't ashamed in verses seven to nine, He was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. He has no reason to be ashamed. I mean, from a human perspective, the crucifixion is one of the greatest shames he endured. He was made a curse. He was hung naked on a tree to the point of death. He was spit and beat upon. He was mocked. He was scourged and flogged. But the resurrection was the vindication of his name and the acceptance of the Father so that he's not disgraced. He's not ashamed. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. says in verse 8, this is why he's not ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. God, the Father, is near to his servant. Christian, in Christ, the Father is drawn near to you. This is one of the things Adam enjoyed in the garden was that God was near to him, walked with him in the garden, and it was lost in the fall, but it's restored in Christ. God provided a way so that he can draw near to you and you can draw near to him. Maybe this is the first time you've been in church in a long time because you feel like you can't come near to God. You gotta get yourself cleaned up first. You gotta get your act together before you can come near. That's a lie. God has made the way possible for you to draw near to him. In Christ, in his servant, he's drawn near to you. And you don't have to get yourself cleaned up before you come. Come as you are. And in Christ, he'll accept you. And he'll change you. And he'll make you into something different. So you don't have to be what you are. The servant in verse 9 confronts his enemies with the same challenge as Jesus. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Who's going to declare me guilty, he says in verse 9. And all of his enemies will ultimately wear out like a garment. God's going to vindicate him his willingness to suffer, the Father's going to vindicate him. Well, the last passage is the most famous. The Suffering Servant Song. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, all the way through chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Written hundreds of years before the crucifixion, spoken of what this servant was accomplishing there at the cross. The father's satisfied with his servant. He's satisfied with his substitute. In fact, in verses 13 to 15, he's exalted for his work at the very beginning of it. He says back in chapter 52, verse 13, my servant's going to act wisely. He's going to be high and lifted up and be exalted. And this threefold exaltation I think refers to his resurrection and ascension and heavenly enthronement. Philippians 2 speaks of it. Acts 2 speaks of it. He's exalted for his wise actions. Verse 13, wisdom describes his life on earth, all that he said, all that he did. And these words, high and lifted up, are only used in Isaiah to ever speak of God. And so who is this servant? Who is this one who is high and lifted up and exalted? Well, he must be God. Well, how then can he be one whose appearance is so marred beyond human semblance? In verse 14, this one who's pierced and crushed and bruised in chapter 53. Well, he's going to explain. His suffering was the plan and purpose of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And this plan and purpose of the Lord was to crush him not just as an example of how much God hates sin, but was to crush him as a substitute for actual sin, yours and mine. And so God prepares him. He says he's going to be a substitutionary sacrifice. This is central to our gospel, this is central to Christianity, this is central to the good news. That Jesus came for a purpose. He came to die. That little baby born in the manger came to go to the cross and die for sinners, even though he was sinless. And this is good news because what it does is it satisfies the righteous character of God so that he can actually forgive our sins. Because God can't simply sweep sin under the rug, he can't wink and say, Hey, you're one of my buddies, I'll let you into heaven. You're in the in crowd. I won't look at that sin and that rebellion and that lying and that stealing and that adultery and that pornography. I won't look at all of that stuff. Don't worry about it. No, his righteous character demands that it be punished. And the good news of the gospel is that at the cross, Jesus was punished in our place for our sin so that we could go free and be forgiven. And it's a gift and all you have to do is receive it by faith. Mankind's the guilty party, verses one to three. It says we didn't believe him. We looked at the Messiah and he there was nothing in him that made us want to desire him. He had no form, no majesty, no beauty that we should desire him. If we could paraphrase Isaiah, we would say, who could believe this was the arm of the Lord? Who could believe this was the servant of God? Who could believe this was the Messiah? He was born to a woman who had a bad reputation because she was pregnant out of wedlock in a backwater village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, far from the center of the Roman Empire. How in the world could this be? The king of the universe, the son of God, the Messiah. He was received, it says in this passage, like a little plant, struggling for life in unwatered ground. His survival was in doubt. He humbled himself. The king of glory, the second person of the Godhead, humbled himself. Will we ever comprehend it? Christian, for all eternity, we're going to worship him and love him for his work and his glory and his infinite and boundless love. That he humbled himself and came to this earth. He was received with derision, despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. We didn't see any significance to him. When we added up what we saw in him, it added up to nothing. Nothing. Zero. We received him with shame. We hid our faces, it says. Not only did we not dis- desire him, we hid our faces and despised him and didn't esteem him for the guilty party. But he's the payment, so the guilty party could go free, verses four to six. He bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. We esteemed him smitten. Stricken by God and afflicted, God must really be punishing him because he must really be a criminal. No, he was the only innocent man in all of human history. It's the greatest crime ever committed. He never sinned and he was put to death. And he was put to death for the sins and crimes of others, us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. And these words pierced and crushed are the strongest terms to describe a violent and agonizing death in the language of Hebrew. And the scourging implies something more than the Roman beatings. He endured divine judgment By that divine judgment falling upon him, we are healed. And once again, we're reminded that he's a willing substitute. Verses 7 to 9, he didn't open his mouth. He went like a lamb, led to the slaughter. He went humbly and meekly, willingly, laying down his life for his sheep. The servant who knew all things beforehand went to his death with joy this is another way he's the better Adam, the better man. I mean, think about this. In this passage, both humanity and Jesus, the Messiah, are compared, are likened to sheep. But when we're the sheep, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to our own way. It's the negative characteristics of sheep that are prominent, but in Christ the Messiah, in him all the sinless perfections are magnified like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. He went. This is why John the Baptist, when he saw him, said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Not just covers it up. See, the Hebrew people knew that every year they had to slaughter animals, sheep, they had to cut their throats and spill the blood on the altar so that their sin could be covered for a year, but it was only good for a year, and it only covered it; it didn't take it away. And so Jesus comes, the Messiah, the servant, and He comes as the Lamb of God, who doesn't just cover it up; He takes away the sin of the world. In the eyes of the world, verse eight, He lived a meaningless life; He had no children. For his generation, he was cut off from the land of the living. That means that not only did he die, but he had no children, and therefore his whole name, his whole generation, his whole family was cut off from the land of the living. He shall prolong his days. He shall see, verse 11, and be satisfied. What's it talking about? Well, this servant sacrifice prospers. Prospers. Verse 9, what was intended for dishonor, a criminal's death, A nameless burial was turned into an honor for he was buried with the rich. And this happened in the life of Jesus. They took him off the cross. He was supposed to just be thrown out on the pile of bodies, burning in the dump outside of Jerusalem. But Joseph of Arimathea came and got his body and buried him in a rich man's tomb. He was an offering for sin and the saving work was successful. He was raised, it says, he shall see his offspring, verse 10. He will see them. Even though he died, he'll see them. He was raised. And far from being childless, his offspring will prosper. Revelation 5 says he has descendants from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue on the planet. And that's what we are. On the other side of the planet, 2,000 years later, here in Knights in California this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are his offspring. You're his descendants. And he saw it. He saw it when he went to the cross and he was satisfied he endured the cross despising its shame for the joy set before him because he knew he would be with you and me, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you can have this today. By faith, you can come to Christ, be part of his family, draw near to God, have forgiveness of sin. And it says in verse 12, he's gonna divide a portion with the many and the spoil with the strong. Not only are we saved From the wrath of God and not only are we forgiven of our sins, but we are receiving his inheritance, his portion, so that we're going to rule and reign with him forever. That's why coming to the New Testament, it's no surprise that the New Testament authors describe Jesus as the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As we heard in John 13, You want to practice true greatness in the kingdom? Be a servant of all. He washed his disciples' feet. And he said, "A servant's not above his master, and we're his servants. And when he came to do this, he came as the second Adam, the perfect king priest, who is the image of God the Father, and as the true and perfect king of the universe, he's going to rule and reign forever with a scepter of righteousness. He's going to make a new heavens and new earth, and he's going to reign And as a perfect high priest, he offered perfect worship through the sacrifice of himself. He brought his sheep near to God. And forevermore, he stands alongside of the Father as one to whom all worship is due. And we're going to praise him forever. But not only that, because we're united to him, we also in the New Testament are called king priests. 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 10, Revelation 1 We share in the kingly reign of Jesus since we've been raised to him in the heavenly places. We share in his authority over spiritual forces. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 6 put on the armor of God, which is Christ. Take your stand against the devil and his schemes. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. But guess what? Christ is ruling and reigning over those spiritual forces, and we've been seated with him, and so we can have victory. And we're going to eternally worship and offer prayer to the Father as we behold his face and dwell in his presence forever. The end of the story, Revelation 7. Listen to this. You can turn there if you'd like. Revelation 7, uh, verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the hope we have. Everything that was lost in the garden because of Adam's sin is renewed in Christ, perfected in Christ, and we're going to receive it. And the book of Revelation says that what's going to happen is this earth is going to become the temple of God. It's going to become what was a garden is going to become a city. It's going to be filled and populated with king priests who serve God day and night forever in his presence. And we're going to be with him and the lamb forever. The garden is going to be transformed into a new Jerusalem and all of the new creation will become the new temple. This is the story of human history This is what's going on. This is God's plan. And we live here in 2016, almost 2017. And our purpose here is to tell this story to the world and see God save those out of darkness and bring them to light, to bring release to the captives, to to bring the year of the favor of our Lord. Those who are bruised and broken, those who are weak and worn out like a smoldering wick, We can tell them the story and they can hear of Jesus, this Savior who will heal their iniquities, open their eyes to see the glory of God in Christ, have forgiveness of sins, have joy and peace forevermore and no more fear. No more fear of the future, no more fear of death. But hope, not wishful thinking, true hope that never disappoints. This is what we have in Christ. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The coming of our Savior. This one who is ruling and reigning forever. Father, thank you for this word this morning. We want to be faithful servants. We want to be useful to you. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of our Savior. Giving us a a glimpse of of ultimate reality and the true story of what's going on in the world. It's so easy to get swayed and carried away by the news and the media and and the rumors we hear, Father. Let us remember that you are on your throne. You are good and you do good. And you demonstrated by sending your son to be our savior, our servant, our substitute. Use us today for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name.